You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today we are taking another step in our set of sermons that we're in this fall called Formed. And really this uh, set of sermons is about change. How does Jesus change us more and more into his image? How are our lives formed so that our hearts reflect Jesus reflexively? That's what we've been talking about. That's what we're exploring together. And we've said over the last few weeks that there are two things that our hearts need to be formed. Uh, One is our hearts must be trained. Uh, So this is where habits in the Christian life comes into play. Uh, This is why Paul says to train yourself for godliness. Godliness will not happen. Change will not happen in the Christian life apart from uh, us training our hearts, us having appropriate habits in our heart to help us uh, move toward Jesus. So our hearts must be trained. But more foundationally, our hearts must first see. Uh, We've got to behold the person and promises of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to come into our hearts and do what only he can do. He has to open up the eyes of our heart, just like we prayed, so that we could see the person of God. This is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he says, first, we've got to behold Jesus. And as we behold the person and promises of Jesus, we become like Jesus. So, so that beholding, seeing is vital for us to become more and more like Jesus. And so this is where we are in this set of sermons. We're just holding up the person and promises of Jesus for all of us collectively together to behold so that over time, as we're beholding, we can become like uh, the Jesus we love so much. So that's where we are. And today we're just taking another step kind of in that direction of what, what are the things about God that we need to see and behold? So to, to get to the places we're going today, the, the big questions we're going to ask are, who is God and why does it matter? Uh, but before we get there today, um, we've got to do some background work of seeing how the Bible talks about our lives and about what's gone wrong with our lives. So you're gonna have to, to stay with me here. It's gonna be an extended introduction for us to get to the question, who is God and why does it matter? And I'm gonna lay out a line of logic that the Bible gives us, a line of true things the Bible gives us to help us understand so much of what is happening in your life and in my life. So hang with me and think through this with me. So let me start with this. The, the scriptures show us that there is a deep ache inside of every human heart to be, I'm going to use these Bible words, to be righteous or to be justified. Those those are the, the sort of words the Bible uses to describe that ache inside of every human heart. It's this ache to be uh, at the same time fully known like, like we're, we're all the way known, every part of us is, is known, and at the same time, we're fully loved and delighted in and cherished, and, and the verdict over our lives reads accepted. There's a deep ache inside of every human being for that. Now, the, the words um, righteous or justified, uh, those words may not be in your everyday vocabulary. You may not use those Uh, every day in your life, but those words are in your everyday life. 
You bring those sort of words with you everywhere you go. Um, Our lives, in a lot of ways, revolves around justification or righteousness questions. You bring those questions with you to work on Monday morning. You take them to your friend's house on Tuesday night when you're hanging out. You brought those questions into this room this morning. They are always in our back pocket, trailing us everywhere we go. Justification questions are universal human questions. We're all asking them. Questions like, am I okay? Am I good enough? Do I measure up? Um, what, what would people think about me if they saw all the way into the depths of my soul? Those are justification questions. And you may not formally ask them, you may not say those out loud, but your heart is asking them all the time. And underneath that set of questions are really the mega questions of life. What does God think of me? Not just what does that person think of me, but what does is, what is God himself think of me? With what I've done and left undone, with the darkness in my heart, with anger and lust and impatience and hatred and greed and addiction and brokenness, with, with all of these things in my heart, what does God think of me? Is there any way that God will ever find it in his heart to be okay with me? Those are all questions rooted in those, those words to justify or that word righteous in the Bible. It's, it's all rooted in that deep ache in our soul to be fully known and at the same time fully loved and delighted in. Now, why does that ache show up in every human heart? Why is that ache in your heart? Why is that? Well, the scriptures show us that we long for it, justification, righteousness. We, we long for it because we were made for it. Now, think about how the scriptures begin. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we see a picture of God creating all things, and everything that he has made is good. And he puts our first parents in this beautiful garden. He gives them one another in, in marriage. And at the end of Genesis chapter 2, in verse 25, that chapter ends by saying, and the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they were naked and they were unashamed. In other words, they were fully known by God, and they were fully loved by God, accepted by God, delighted in by God, secure in God. And maybe this is another way we could say it. They were justified. Or in Genesis 1 and 2, they were righteous in the sight of God. They were examined down to the depths of their soul. And the most influential voice in the universe, the, the voice of God himself, spoke over them, accepted, approved delighted in, loved. That, that was God's verdict over their life in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and here's the thing. That the Bible is showing us in these chapters that God has hardwired our hearts to hear that verdict from God. Approved, accepted, loved, delighted in. Your heart is hardwired to hear those words from the most influential voice in the universe, God himself. But as the narrative continues, you get to Genesis chapter 3, here is what we find. The very thing we were made for 
was lost. This is where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you just heard the, the narrative read. Our first parents rebelled against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. And with that first sin, uh, the scriptures show us that they felt something new, something they had never felt in their life. They felt a new thing. And you see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. In other words, for the first time in their life, they felt exposed. They felt inadequate. They felt insecure. They felt fearful. The idea of being naked is so much bigger than, oh my gosh, I need clothes. It's so much bigger than that in the text. Uh, that idea of being naked is, is Adam and Eve feeling for the first time something is now wrong. Th things are now um, not right. For the first time, they are feeling something in them that says, you better hide. They're feeling something in them of, you better be afraid of God. They are realizing things are no longer okay. The pre maybe you could think of it this way. The, the presentability that they had felt all of their life, they enjoyed all of their life, they could just come before God and one another and, and feel secure and feel um, significant and feel loved. They could come before God and others and feel all of that, that they felt presentable. And now for the first time, they felt what it feels like to lose that presentability, that they no longer felt approved, accepted, that was lost. Because of their rebellion, the verdict, their hearts were made to hear, accepted, had changed. Now, the most influential voice in the universe had examined them, and it was no longer saying accepted, but now rejected. The very thing we were made for, we lost in Genesis 3. Now, here is what the text shows us next. That what our first parents lost, they instantly began the work of trying to regain. So look at how Adam and Eve respond to that feeling of a lack of presentability, nakedness, exposure, insecurity. Look at how they respond. And by the way, pay attention to how the text arranges this because the text is showing us something about our innate responses, our reflex to the feeling of, of nakedness or a lack of presentability. So verse, uh, look at verse 7, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The first, it comes in two parts. The first half ends by saying they felt for the first time naked. They felt exposed, insecure. And now what did they do next? The next statement. So it's here, there in the text. The next thing we read is Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, the second half of the verse. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, let's just put it all together and follow the logic of the narrative. It would go something like this. Our first parents longed for presentability, to be righteous, to be justified. They longed for it because they were made for it. They were made to hear the voice of God say, accepted, approved, presentable. But because of sin, what they longed for was lost. And now what they lost, they instantly began the work of trying to regain. 
So what did they do in the text? Apart from God, they went about the work of cutting some leaves, cutting some fig leaves, and patching up a new presentability, of trying to cover that feeling of exposure, of inadequacy, of nakedness. They went about the work, apart from God, of trying to make themselves feel okay again. Now, let's take a step back and just observe now this text. Genesis 3 does just an amazing job of explaining what is happening in most of our lives most of the time. It just does such a great job of explaining human beings and what our lives are like. Just like our first parents, we were made uh, to be known by God, fully known and fully loved. To, to hear from God, the most influential being in the universe, accepted, approved, presentable. Uh, but we all sense this sin-created nakedness, this sense of exposure and inadequacy. We all know that if anyone really knew us, like all of us, they would find a lot down there that we would not want them to find. That they would find a lot in us that just is not lovable. That they would find all of those types of things in us. That we all know deep down that things aren't right. Things are not, not what they once were. And just like our first parents, we've set about the work of covering all that we know is wrong, trying to patch together a new sense of presentability, trying to convince God and other people and even ourselves uh, that we're okay. Like our first parents, we're all on the quest to regain the presentability we lost in the garden. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher. He, he said it this way. He called this idea the disinherited prince syndrome. He says that every human being has the faint memory of knowing they are an heir, that they are a prince, an heir of, of the king, of God himself. And they spend their lives trying to regain what they know that they've lost, the disinherited prince syndrome. We, we all have that. We're all trying to regain that presentability that, that we've lost. And this is not just an abstract sort of thought lingering somewhere out there in the nether. No, this is in the, the reality of your life. It is an earthy truth. Like it shows up in every one of our lives in ways that, that um, are stunning. It's amazing to just observe how this is underneath so much of our behavior. Uh, think about these justification questions. This, this, am I okay? Do I measure up? H am I all right? <laughs> those sort of questions, those questions, those justification questions, they start early in life. Every parent knows this. Every parent has watched their kids ask justification questions. Uh, when Caleb, my son, was about five years old, it was just so funny to observe and watch what he would do. He would uh, get out in the front yard and he would run as fast as he could. So he's, he, he's sprinting and then he crosses the finish line and he would look up at me and say, Dad, but aren't I fast? Now, what is that? That is a justification question. Dad, am, am I okay? Am I fast? Uh, if you've had girls, we have two girls in our home. When they're five, six years old, they love to dress up coming to the living room and show the world their amazingness, right? And they're looking and they would come in and dress up and then they would say, dad, but, but don't I look beautiful? 
What is that? That's a justification question. They, they would get a choreographed dance and they would come into the living room and they would perform and then they would say, but dad, am I not amazing? Now, what is all that? Th those are all surface rumblings of that deep ache for justification. And those questions that start early in life, they have a way of staying with us. Uh, the classic way that I've illustrated this in the past is with the movie Chariots of Fire. Some of you have seen that movie. It's about Eric Little. He was a, an Olympic gold medal sprinter. And uh, in a lot of ways, he walked away from fame and glory and, and a lot of success to go be a missionary in China. But his counterpart in the movie is another sprinter. His name is Harold Abrams. And there is this moment before the big race, this Olympic race where Harold Abrams is uh, just reflecting on his life. It's, it's an, about an hour before the race is about to go down. And, and he's thinking about track and he's thinking about uh, what track is in his life and his life. And listen to what he says in that movie. He says, I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I'm gonna be in the starting blocks, about to run 100 meters. And he says, I will raise my eyes and I'll look down that corridor, four feet wide. He's just looking down the, the lane of the track that he's about to be running down. And then listen to what he says. With 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. That same ache in the soul of a five, six-year-old boy or girl stayed with Harold Abrams. It's not like it just magically disappears when you're 20 or 30 or 50 or 70. It doesn't do that. What starts early stays with us. Uh, think about what's happening in Harold Abrams' life. He's looking at his life and he's saying, I need something in my life to make me okay. I need something in my life to to know that I measure up. I need something to cover my inadequacy and that insecurity in me. And his fig leaf, his way of patching up his presentability, it was a 100-meter-long fig leaf. That's, that's what he's using. He's, he's looking at a track and saying, this is how I'll do it. I'll accomplish my way into it. I'll run my way into presentability. I'll win my way into presentability. That's, that's how I'm going to patch up my presentability. See, for Harold Abrams, it was not about the enjoyment of running. You can contrast that with Eric Little. At one point, he says in his life, he says, when I run, I feel the enjoyment of God. That is appropriate God-honoring sort of motives for competition. But Harold Abrams is not that. He's not running for the enjoyment of God. He is running for his life. He is running to patch up some presentability. He is running to, to secure a sense of, I'm okay, I measure up, it's gonna be okay, I'm gonna be approved based on how I do in this race. He is running for his life. Now, it may not be a 100 meter race for you, but it's something for you. It's something. Human beings cannot live without looking at something and saying, that's going to be the way that I regain my presentability. This is going to be the way that I cover that inadequacy. This is going to be how I deal with that feeling of nakedness and exposure and insecurity. This is the way I'm going to do it. 
Work will do it. Accomplishment will do it. If I can just gain enough money, that'll make me feel secure. That'll make me feel adequate. Because when I come into the presence of people who have a lot of money, I just feel so small and and insecure. So if I can just get enough, then then I'll feel okay. Uh, Possessions will do it. If I can just get enough stuff and big enough stuff, then I'll feel secure and, and presentable. Relationships will do it. So if I can just get that girl, or if I can just get that guy, if I can just get marriage, if I can just get that kind of in on that crowd of people, if I can just do that, then I'll feel okay. Winning will do it. Kids will do it. My kids turn out okay, I'm okay. If my kids turn out well, then I feel secure and presentable. If we're in school, grades can do it. There are as many examples as there are human stories because we're all doing this. We're all trying to regain that sense of presentability. These are all surface rumblings of that deep ache for righteousness, for justification. So there's this deep ache in the heart of every human being to be righteous, to be justified, presentable. You long for it because you were made for it. And hear this. There is no amount of money, of fame, of accomplishments that will ease that ache. It won't do it. It doesn't work. Now, to prove this, listen to the words of the great theologian, Madonna. (laughs) Listen to what she says about her life. She says, I have an iron will, and that will has always been to conquer this horrible feeling of inadequacy. I just love that she's aware of it. She's seeing it. That that deep down, I feel so naked and exposed and insecure, and I am looking for something in my life to ease that. She says, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think, I'm just mediocre and uninteresting again. And then she says, and that has happened again and again and again and again in my life, she says. And then she finishes by saying this, my drive in life has been to end this horrible fear, this horrible sense of nakedness, exposure, inadequacy. But then she says, but I probably never will. Now, here's the thing. This is a person who is earned, spent, accomplished, and done more than most of us in this room ever will. And she's saying none of it's work to ease that ache. None of that has patched up a sufficient amount of presentability for me to feel okay about my life. It hasn't worked. So that then begs the question, what in the world do we do? Are we just stuck in that forever? What what do we do? And now that is God is primed and ready for the two big questions of the morning. Who is God and why does it matter? Who is God? Well, there's so much we could say to answer that question, but but here's the thing I just want to focus in on and, and be able to see clearly and say today to you. Who is God? Here's the way we're answering that question today. God is gracious. That's 
who God is. When you think of your God, it is so important that you're thinking right thoughts about him. And here's one right thought to see and to think about God. God is gracious. Now think back to Genesis chapter three for a moment. So Adam and Eve sin, and in sinning, they lose their presentability. And what they lost, they desperately tried to regain, right? They were sowing fig leaves together, trying to patch up that sense of presentability. And then God comes to them, and God addresses Adam and Eve, and then I want you to notice what God does for them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God comes along and he slaughters innocent animals. And with the skins of those animals, he replaces Adam and Eve's man-made coverings and he gives them God-made clothes. That's what we see in Genesis 3. And that, what we see in Genesis 3, is the first picture of what we see God doing in the person of Jesus. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. In the New Testament, you, you crack open the New Testament and we meet the person of Jesus, God the Son. Now think about what we see happening with Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Everywhere we have fallen, Jesus perfectly succeeded. He lived the life that we could never live. And then what do we see happen to Jesus? Jesus died. He died the death that we should have died. There on the cross, you see the picture here. The innocent one was slain. And in his death, God strips us of all of our man-made coverings. And he gives us new and perfect clothes, the clothes of Jesus. That's what's happening in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible has a word to describe that happening. And the word is justification. That you have been justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the clearest places to see that word justification in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It's going to be on the screen for you. Listen to this text. Just an amazing, it's an amazing promise the gospel gives us. Here it is. Paul says, for our sake. So God is looking at you and saying, for your sake, church, for your sake. God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that, so that's answering the question of why did God do that? So that. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. In him, we might become justified. In him, we might regain our presentability. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. That verse shows us two amazing realities. Here's the first. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all that's wrong with you was given to him. All that's wrong with you was given to Jesus. All of your sins, all of your failures, all of your inadequacies, all of your dark thoughts, all of your pride, all of your lust, all of your greed was stacked onto Jesus, crushing him, piercing him, bruising him, and ultimately slaying him. All that's wrong with you was given to him. And here's the second part of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And all that's right with Jesus is given to you. 
That is the heart of justification. All that's wrong with you is given to Jesus and all that's right with him is given to you. Jesus' perfect record of righteousness is credited to your account. We be became the righteousness of God. When, when we stop our work, our desperate sort of attempts to regain our presentability, all, all of our work to regain that, and by faith, we come to Jesus. Jesus gives back to us what we lost in the garden. The, the presentability that we lost, the nakedness that we have felt, the, the exposure, the inadequacy, Jesus gives us back our presentability. He justifies us. He, he gives us his perfect clothes to wear so that the verdict over our life from the most influential voice in the universe changes from rejected back to accepted, approved, delighted in, loved. It, it, through Jesus, God is looking at you and saying, I know all of you, not just the best. I know the very worst of you. If you are in Christ, Accepted, loved, cherished. That's what we mean when we say that God is gracious. That God meets us with his grace in such a way that when we stop from our striving, our working to regain our presentability, and we come to God with the empty hands of faith that he gives us back the presentability the righteousness, the justification that our hearts long for. Who is God? God is gracious. Why does that matter? Well, if that's true, here's what that means for our lives. That means we don't have to prove ourselves. Just put those two truths together. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. So we can stop working to patch up our presentability and we can come to Jesus for our presentability, all that our hearts long for and want. There are only two options for your life, just two. There's not more than two. There's just two options for you to deal with that sense of nakedness, exposure, insecurity, inadequacy, just two. The first option is you can work to achieve your righteousness. The Bible would call this self-righteousness. Because you're trying to gain your righteousness by your work, self-righteousness, or self-justification. Because you're trying to gain your justification, that sense of being okay and measuring up by your work. Self-righteousness, self-justification, self-salvation. You're trying to save yourself by your work. It's attempting to patch up that sense of okayness apart from God. And this is the default response of the human heart. Left to yourself, this is how you're going to respond every time you have that feeling of nakedness and exposure. How do I patch up my presentability? And there are multiple ways to do that. You can do that in what we might call the secular way, right? We can patch up that sense of presentability by intentionally leaving God out of that work of covering ourselves. Think Madonna. She's not doing anything in reference to God. She's just trying to accomplish her way out of it. She's trying to, to earn her way out of it. She's trying to be interesting as a way out of it. She's trying to stay relevant as a way out of it. She's trying to get more fame as a way out of it. All of it is just irrespective of God. Think in Luke 15, the, the younger brother, the, the prodigal son. He breaks all the rules to try to regain that sense of presentability. So there's a secular way of doing it. But there's also a very religious way of achieving our righteousness. 
This way intentionally invites God into our work to cover that deep sense of unpresentability. This is the older brother in Luke 15. He stays at home. He stays near the father that's the representative of God in the parable. He obeys the father. He does all the things the father wants. He's a rule keeper. And he's doing all of that in an effort to save himself, to justify himself, to patch up his presentability. His way is just not by breaking the rules, it's by following the rules. I was telling my story or parts of it to a group of people the other day and I was just reminiscing how uh, if, if I were just to, to put all like my first 20 years into a couple of simple ideas, uh, the simple idea for me would be those years were spent by me trying to patch up my presentability with really two things. Uh, one was athletic achievement and the other was relational achievement. So if I could, if I just sort of had the wins I wanted and I had the women I wanted, then I felt, I felt okay. I felt like I measured up. I had a, a sense of security in my life if I had those couple of things. Uh, but the, you know what I found out in my 20s and 30s? That ministry is a really great fig leaf too. So if I can just preach well enough, lead well enough, pastor well enough, man, I can feel really great about myself that way too. I can, I can kind of have this inner sense of I'm okay and I measure up. And although those two look very different on the surface, I broke a lot of rules to get the first ones and I kept a lot of rules to get the second one. Although they look very different on the surface, they have the exact same source. They're all an attempt to save, to prove, to justify myself by my works. In each of those moments, I'm depending on my achievements, what I'm doing to patch up my presentability. And I just want to invite you for a second to linger there. How are these justification questions showing up in your life? It's not a question of if they're showing up. It's just where they're showing up. See, even when you become a Christian, you don't leave these questions behind. The book of Galatians was written to a church in part to address this particular issue in their life. They're trying to patch up their presentability in ways that are apart from Jesus's work for them. They're working to patch it up. It's written for Christians because they're doing this. So, so we don't leave this behind. This is gonna be something that nags at you for the rest of your life with Jesus. Jerry Bridges says it this way. He says, my observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we have performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works, not by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define it, basically is up to us, our commitment, our discipline, our zeal, with some help from God along the way. He goes on to say this, We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. Karma. 
That's our unspoken motto. You can just test how you relate to the Lord. When things aren't going well in your life, do you find thoughts like this surfacing in your heart? But, but God, I go to church, I tithe, I serve, I do this, I do that. Look at all I'm doing for you, God, and you give me this? That is evidence of, of us living in a performance economy. We are working to achieve our sense of righteousness. And then on the flip side, when things are going well, we look around and we're like, well, of course they're going well. Have you seen how well I'm doing? How smart I am? How hard I've worked for these? Are you seeing what all I've done? Of course things are going well. God owes me these good things in my life. That's karma. That's not grace. And God does not operate on karma. He operates by grace in our life. Think about how you react to sin. When you're operating kind of in this performance economy, when you sin, you don't just experience conviction, you experience condemnation. See, for a Christian, conviction is when God pierces our heart and we feel the weight of our sin. And that leads us directly back to God confessing our sin. But when we're in that sort of economy of performance, we don't feel conviction, we feel condemnation. We feel the weight of our sin, the ugliness of our sin, and then the last thing we would ever think of doing in the worst of our sin is bringing that sin to God and confessing it. But we're just like Adam and Eve. We are finding a bush to hide behind because we are terrified of God in that moment. That, that's what a performance economy does to our heart. Not, not conviction, but condemnation. When, when you sin in ways that you can't even believe it, just look at your heart. How do you respond to God in that moment? That, that is showing something about how we're relating to God. Are we working to achieve our righteousness? Um, I, I think virtually all of us believe deep down where it counts that God will be more pleased with this future version of us that doesn't have these bad things in our life but has more of these good things in our life. And if we can just get these bad things out and these good things in, God will actually love us then. He'll actually accept us then. And can I just look at you and say, that is a lie. It's not true. God's verdict over the lives of his sons and daughters, those who are in Christ, does not go up and down based on your performance. It stays steady because it is based on the performance of Jesus. look at the effects of living in this performance sort of economy, working to achieve your presentability. Richard Loveless talks about it like this. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements. He says, this is what happens in their life. They are radically insecure people. It takes our insecurity and amplifies it. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. Why is it that we feel this need to defend ourselves, to prove ourselves to others? To, we just can't let this argument go because this argument has moved from, we're trying to help a person see clearly to know, I am arguing for my life until I hear them say, they are wrong and I am right. I, I can't let this go. Why is that? 
It's because this argument is how we're trying to patch up our presentability. Why do we compare ourselves to others, be envious of others, gloat in the shortcoming of others? Uh, the reason is because we don't believe that God is gracious. We think that we have to work to achieve our righteousness, that Jesus doesn't give us our righteousness. There's only two options. We can work to achieve our righteousness or we can open up our hands and receive our righteousness. Achieve it, receive it. Those are the only two options. We call receiving righteousness as grace justification, not self-justification, but grace justification. It's the moment that you stop working. You stop trying to patch up your presentability. You, you stop working and you come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. Your righteousness was never meant to be achieved. It has always meant to be received. It's the only way you will ever have the presentability your heart longs for. Madonna is stuck until she stops her working for her presentability and comes to Jesus for it. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Now, how do we get that truth deeper into our hearts? How do we do that? We said this a couple of weeks ago. Here's, here's how. You need to find that promise in the scriptures, and then you need to preach it to your heart. Find the promise, preach the promise. This is just the normal habit of our life. You're gonna feel tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're gonna feel that sort of default mode pull you into self-justification. I've gotta go prove myself today that I'm a somebody. You're gonna feel that this week. What do you do? You find a promise, then you preach that promise. I'd like to end just by doing that with you and we'll, we'll be done. Find a promise and preach a promise. My favorite place to see this truth, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. If I had one place to go in the Bible to see this in a very, this promise in a preachable way, it would be John 30, or I'm sorry, John 19, verse 30. Uh, in John 19, Jesus is at the very end of his life. He is hanging from a cross. He is dying. And right before he takes his final breath, we read these words. Verse 30 of John 19. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's say those three words together. It is finished. Can you say it with me again? It is finished. The next time you're in an argument and you, it's descended into, you're arguing for your life. It's not to help this other person. It is to patch up your presentability. You can't lose this argument and feel okay. Take this promise and preach it to your heart. It is finished. Can you say that with me? It is finished. The next time your kid disobeys and your first thought is not, how can I shepherd his heart? How can I pastor him? But no, your first thought is, what is his behavior gonna say about me to other people? What is it gonna say about me to God? How is God, how are other people gonna look at me in light of what they're seeing in him? What's gonna happen to me? When that moment happens, we have to find this promise and preach it to ourselves. Can you say it with me? It is finished. 
The next time we are tempted to look at that person, that relationship, that job, winning this competition and say, this is how I'm going to prove myself today. This is how I'm going to tell the world. This is how I'm going to tell myself. This is going to how I'm going to tell God that I am okay. You're going to have to find the promise and preach it. And here it is. Say it again with me. It is finished. The next time someone gives you feedback, they criticize you, and rather than listening for the truth in it, you just feel so wounded by their words, you are just crushed under the weight of criticism. It's just exposing all that insecurity in you. You're going to have to find this promise and preach it. Here it is. Let's say it together again. It is finished. The next time you blow it so badly that you can't even believe it. It has shocked you the way that you have sinned and you're not feeling conviction. You are feeling condemnation. The last person you want to see, the last person you want to think about, the last person you want to bring the worst of you over to is God. In that moment when you are just like our first parents hiding in the garden trying to find some bush to hide around to stay away from God, you're going to have to find this promise and preach it. And here it is. Let's say it again together. It is finished. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. It really is finished, church. Jesus has accomplished everything you need to be presentable again, to be approved again, to be accepted again, to be known by the most influential person in the universe, and then to hear his voice say over you, yes, mine, I love them, delight in them, want them. So church, can we make the goal of each day of our life to enjoy the freedom of this precious truth? Amen. Why don't you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to talk to you, to take this truth and to sink it into your heart. give you just a moment to ask the Lord to show you where is it that I'm trying to to achieve righteousness patch up my presentability what, what am I looking to in my life to do that and some of us for the first time today we need to turn from all of our attempts to patch up that presentability. And for the first time, we need to, to throw our lives on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to come to God with the empty hands of faith. And you know what he loves to do when, when we do that? He loves to take all that's wrong with us and to put it on Jesus. And then he loves to take all that's right with Jesus and to put it on us to give us new garments, the garments of righteousness, the garments of justification. He'd love to do that for you today. So just in the best way you know how, if that's you, you can call out to God, I am trusting Jesus, save me, rescue me. And he would love to come into this moment in your life and do that very thing. And others of us, this isn't the first time, this is the 10,000th time that we're doing it. Just coming to God again and saying, 
God, I'm turning from all of these ways I'm trying to patch up presentability, and I'm coming back to you, Jesus, again.